Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Certified Forgotten, still the only show where Donato talks about nothing but slaughter, Slaughterhouse for an hour and 30 minutes, I think today is what we're, we're angling for. No, we're, it's still the only show that talks about horror films with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. But our boy has just watched Slaughterhouse. He threatened to take over the episode and only talk about that. So I feel like I have to give him 40 seconds of uninterrupted time at the top before we introduce our guest. Uh, just get it out of your system, right? I'm just going to be very upfront and honest and say it's fucking fun. I like I went into this movie not understanding how much it was going to love the concept, how much it was going to be indebted to it. And for as much as I love Dude Bro Party Massacre, like Amelia said after the screening, dead ass, she's like, this is my dude, bro. Like, th- this is amazing. So all the, you know, Winnie the Pooh ones, what was that? Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Horror, the, the mean one, the Grinch slasher the killing tree, all these concept slashers that keep trying to come out and keep failing because they don't actually want to give it 110%. Slaughter half, or sorry, Slaughterhouse gives it 110%. So there it is. There, there is my, you're getting my Slaughterhouse review that no one else is getting. Actually, no, I'm just kidding. This is going to post way later than my actual review on IGN. So go read that in, in the past. How you feel, bud? Did you get that out of your system? God, like literally I'm jazzed on Slaughterhouse. I know. You're riding that sloth high, but I respect it. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, allowing us to work that. Trust me, you would not have wanted to have listened to this podcast if Donato had not gotten to talk about that a little bit. Uh, We are, as always, really excited to be here talking about underseen horror with y'all. And we're excited because we have a guest today who has sort of literally written the book on underseen and, and, you know, should be canonical horror films. We're going to talk about that in a big way today. But Donato, if you can think about anything else other than your sloth movie, could you please introduce our guest? I'm going to do my best for the next 45 minutes. What is it? 60 minutes? I'm, I'm going to really hone in here and do my due diligence because we're bringing on a guest. And I, you know, like I, I think about people who I've quote unquote known in the industry uh, longest and like the people who when I started out as a critic who I was talking to and it still sticks on my mind that this person has like followed and engaged. And like, we started some kind of online friendship in very early terms in my career. Uh, so I, yeah, this is cool for me and I get to say their name out loud for the first time ever. And I, I'm not going to do the thing they told me they were going to do. They said, it, <laughs> associate it to Frank Drebin. And now in my mind, I just want to call them Scott Drebin, but I'm not going to because our guest this week is Scott Drebitz from Daily Dead, podcaster on the Corpse Club, also contributor to Daily Dead, also a published author. Again, Monogle is correct, wrote the book on Underseen Horror. So we'll get to that later. But uh, Scott, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Matt and Matt, for uh, having me. <clears throat> okay, I'm ready to go. You are excellent, sir. So uh, people who listen to the show, and there are dozens of you, uh, know that we always like to start by getting to know our guest a little bit. And I'm, I'm having to resist a bit because as Donato said, next month, um, or sorry, October of this year, you're going to be releasing your first book, A Cut Up Below, A Celebration of B-Horror Movies, 1950s to 1980s. I want to talk about how you sit down and write a book about horror, but I think we need to talk about your relationship to horror before we get there. So let's start at the beginning. What were the first movies that really left an impression on you, Scott? Oh boy. So my journey began when I was uh, six years old and my mom took me to see burnt offerings in the theater. 
Um, so my mom became my immediate uh, horror buddy. And I think everyone remembers their first uh, horror buddy for sure. My mom uh, was my original, was the OG uh, horror buddy for me. So, so burnt offerings at six in the theater uh, with people, of course, giving my mom looks like, what are you bringing a kid to uh, this, uh, um, uh, sorry, Matt, uh, haunted house movie, sort of. I know you're not a, a fan of those. Um, and so it, it began there. Um, I did get a chance in that same small town in Saskatchewan uh, to see some movies that I should not have seen. Uh, my older brother who was babysitting me, turned to me at home and said, uh, in 1978, do you want to go see Halloween? Uh, well, having seen the trailers uh, on TV and already, as I said, you know, a psyched uh, horror guy, I said, sure. So I was eight. He was 14. <laughs> we go to the theater and he tells the theater owner, that uh, he's babysitting me, but we got locked out of the house and the parents won't be home for a couple hours. Can can we come see the movie? Like he's he's seen lots of movies like this, like it's good, I'll look after him, it's it's all good. And so the guy let us in. We missed maybe the first 10 minutes or so. Uh, we came right in at the escape uh, from the asylum. And uh, so that was certainly another early uh, stepping stone. Um, in 1980, my family moved from Canada to uh, Mandeville, Jamaica. My dad was a bank manager with uh, CIBC Bank, and he put in for an international transfer. Uh, back in the day, they would uh, put your name in a hat, and then they would send a person to a country that maybe was behind technologically, to get them up on the latest banking practices, etc. So we got sent to up in the mountains of Jamaica, Mandeville, Jamaica. Uh, on our way down there, again, this was 1980, uh, we picked up our very first VCR, which is absolutely vital, uh, I think, in a lot of horror kids' uh, stories. And we went to, I mean, we picked up some movies to own, and those cost... Uh, you know, $30, $50, whatever it was, in 1980 money, right? Uh, my mom picked Norma Ray to buy. That's a very rewatchable. Uh, my dad picked A Clockwork Orange, and uh, I picked Friday the 13th uh, to own. And I think my brothers picked uh, North Dallas 40. And so off we went to... Uh, Jamaica because there was really no TV uh, there at Kane. There's one channel, the JBC government run came on at four in the afternoon and was done at 11 at night. Uh, so you watched a lot of movies. Uh, so there was a one video store in town. Now at this time in the video uh, uh, in the world of VHS and, and, and Betamax and that, uh, a lot of tapes were just starting to, to, to hit the market. So as a 10-year-old boy, uh, I was seeing the first stuff that was coming out on videotape. Uh, you know, horror, uh, Halloween was, was put out by Charles Band's company that he started, Media uh, Entertainment. And so uh, you got to watch all of the media movies, including 
you know, the, the, uh, soft core stuff, R rated, uh, comedy ones. Like, can I do it till I need glasses, uh, wizard video, all of everything. And it was people like Charles band who were the first to hit the market with movies, but movies were flooding the market at such an incredible rate that you never, well, you were never running out because it was all new, uh, up until that point, the only chance you ever saw of what rewatching a movie was catching a, a rerun on the late show. Right. So, uh, to get this incredible film avalanche, uh, of knowledge in, uh, from the time I was 10 and my focus was, I mean, I watched everything else, comedy and action and all that, but my focus was horror and certainly the market, it reflected that because a lot of the early videotapes that were coming out were, you know, were horror. So that was really that, uh, you know, seeing burnt offerings at, at six Halloween at eight. Um, and then that, just that environment of total video uh, submersion from then on, uh, is 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 where i went you know can i can i ask you immediately a really tough question about yeah. about horror stuff because i'm i'm listening to your story and i'm thinking it, it my mind went to a weird place and i was immediately thinking about a lot of what you see on social media about how this current generation of horror fans learns by making right you have people that are making short films on tiktok or or the what amounts to short films on tiktok and their education how they're understanding concepts of like um, production design and the use of light and the use of color. Shout out to Donato who just wrote a really good piece on the use of red and horror. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of like, it's a more tactile experience. They're learning by doing. And I'm curious if you have an opinion on what you're seeing sort of between, you know, generations more like ours where we grew up watching and we learned, you know, the, the, the Tarantino approach, right. Where like you learn by like studying at a video store, that being your classroom, Versus a generation of the new generation of horror fans who learn by kind of like going out there and trial and airing it themselves and like making stuff. Do you think that's changed how how we approach horror, how we think about horror, and what's actually getting made? I th I think so. Probably because the uh, delivery system has become so much more immediate now. With uh, you know, you can make a whole movie on on your phone and and have it critically uh, acclaimed. So I think the ability to uh, uh, present your art uh, is much more immediate than it used to be, say, when we were coming up where you'd have your, your an eight millimeter or something and uh, a super eight. And then you you spend one hundred dollars on film and then you spend another hundred to get it developed and, you know, hope you have something. Then you got to then you got to loop it. And mm -hmm. it's like but now it's they can vision plan it and do it immediately and, and have it presented, which I think is the important part. Uh, so, so immediately, but I, I think the danger in that too, though, is when it go becomes before the delivery system uh, for our generation coming up was strictly um, TV films. That's it. Uh, now there's so many other avenues that I think, uh, can sometimes, I guess, dilute uh, what these people are trying uh, to accomplish. New artists coming up, you know, without a, mm -hmm. I think you, you had to, I think 
in the and it, I, this doesn't want to sound like cranky old man, but I think in the older days you, you just had to come. You were coming at it from a different uh, angle. You had to, you know, raise money, and uh, there was so much more to do before you could even press play uh, on on your camera. So I think it's great that there's an, there's an immediate there can be an immediate reaction uh, uh, to art, and I think there's so many talented. Uh, young uh, directors out there that didn't, uh, thankfully, you know, uh, didn't grow up on um, uh, TV commercials. Uh, mm, they yeah. don't have, they're not filmed that way. They're not stylized that way. Uh, not, I mean, listen, Tony, you know, Ridley Scott and, and Tony Scott, obviously they, and David Fincher, you know, these guys all started in, in, in advertising and commercials and whatnot. And that's one thing, but I think these new artists today, they don't have that, that TV, uh, that Nike sheen, um, to it. There's, there's some grit and, and, and grime there, which is always good to see. The only thing I, I look for in, in a new filmmaker is I don't care how derivatives, derivative, pardon me, it is, but if it's done with a lot of, uh, heart and, uh, and, uh, a sincerity, if it's a, if it's not some, you know, some bullshit, uh, cynical, uh, movie. And we've seen how many movies have we seen of horror that are just cynical cash-ins, right? If you, if a horror artist comes out and yeah, maybe it's not the most original thing, but it's done with a lot of energy and, and style and, and empathy and sincerity. I'm on board with that filmmaker, you know, like no matter like how rough or how unfinished it may seem, you talent shows, uh, you know, no matter what. So I think, I think we're in good hands with, uh, with this generation, like you said, with us, it was watching, uh, and, and maybe trying to emulate our idols and then branching off into our own thing. And now these folks, like you said, are maybe not so much bowing down to, um, you know, the visual masters or whatnot of before and are, doing their own thing now their own thing is going to end up obviously looking like only a, so many people because that there's only so many ways to look on a screen you know mm -hmm. but i think we're in good hands with uh with this next generation of filmmakers I, i'm worried about the next one after that with the tiktok uh, uh filmmakers that that could be creepy yeah, I mean, the entry point to like, as you both said at this, this juncture, like the entry point to making things is much different now. And it's become easier in the way that film criticism has become easier to break into because all you need is like a social media account or a blog. Uh, you know, the same thing has happened now where all you need is a smartphone or something of that nature. So it's just by virtue that through that, we're going to get amazing examples of how a smartphone can film something like host that ends up, you know, defining horror during the quarantine uh, for so many people. And at the same time, this, the cynical, like I, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because I think the difference between the people who stand out in an easier environment, quote unquote, again, I'm saying easier, not to say it's easy to make these films, but easier in the sense to get them out there and get them noticed. Uh, you know, you get the cynical where they look at something and go, cool, found footage is all the rage. I can just do that in my backyard with a handheld phone and stuff like that. Like I can easily do that. And those are the ones you can pick out so quick. Like how many found footage movies have, have I seen in the past year alone that are like the quickie cash grab, the quickie, not even cash grab, the quickie, Hey, 
found footage doesn't need to be anything but shaky cam, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, it does. It needs to be so much more than that. And that's where you get the next generation of filmmaker who understand the act, what it takes behind the shaky cam, behind the tropes, behind all these things. And that, that is really what excites me too. It's like, you see one of these little low budget things or, you know, even something like a dead stream that just comes out of nowhere and understands that it's, quote unquote easy to make a found footage movie but goddamn there is so much passion so much everything behind deadstream so if it, it's, everything it's nice was to have as that. fun as if everything was as fun as deadstream my god what a perfect mm-hmm. world it would be i just love that movie absolutely adore it it's it's just fascinating to me to think that that um previous generations our generations would if we wanted to learn more about horror we would go to the video store and watch whatever we could and I think there's an argument to be made that newer generations, if they want to learn more about horror, they're going to go out and shoot a, a 30 second horror film. And it's just a, a, it's the reader versus writer, the filmmaker versus film watcher kind of approach. And I think that ties in, I'm going to use that as a pivot point to start talking uh, about your book, because what you wrote, what you, what's coming out later this year also, I think sits at that interesting intersection um, between like accessibility, both accessibility of production as well as accessibility of audiences, right? You're talking about B-horror movies, which are notoriously the things that were easier to get made, the cheaper things, but also for a lot of folks, kind of an early access to movies. They'd see these B-horror movies in theaters as part of a double feature, or it was something that they would be able to see at their local drive-in. So skip ahead and to the point where you're, all this knowledge about horror that you kind of accumulated, when did that start to take the shape of a book in your mind? Uh, Well, let's see about 2012. I, cause I hadn't done any, any writing at all. So in 2012, I thought I'm going to be uh, a children's uh, author. I'm going to be a children's author. I may have some grandkids someday. Of course, now I have, uh, two, but at that time I, I didn't have yet. But I thought, yeah, I'll be a, a child, trying to be a child's author. So I, I enrolled in the Institute of uh, Children's uh, Writing. Is that what it's? Yeah, I think that's what it's called. Uh, graduated from that, and then I decided, no, I think I want to write about horror instead. And specifically, I wanted to write uh, review pieces. Uh, about horror movies. Uh, I wanted to write about older horror movies because that was kind of what I was mostly into, no matter how many new ones I see. And I do see many new ones. I I always uh, would circulate, even back then, uh, to um, older ones. So I wrote up a couple uh, sample pieces. And uh, one on my very first one I did wrote was on Burnt Offerings. And the second one was on uh, Dead and Buried. And I thought, well, this is the way if I ever get a, because I was already envisioning it. If I get a column out of this, I'll start with Burnt Offerings because that was the first, that was ground zero, which is what I say in the review. This was ground zero for me. And and I'll go from there. So I did up, uh, the, had up, did up these two samples and I shopped them around to everyone. Uh, everyone that you can possibly think of all the ones that we know and, uh, and love in print, uh, and online. And, uh, the only person who responded, uh, to me was, uh, Jonathan James at, uh, Daily Dead. And, uh, he said, can I give you a call? And so we chatted and, uh, 
he says, I'd love to have you write uh, for us. Do you have any ideas? Like, are you, do you think this could be like a column? I said, well, I think, yeah, that's what I want is it to be a column. So we decided on a, a weekly column. Uh, I came up with the title drive and dust offs. And so I had a weekly column starting in 2015, uh, April of 2015, uh, daily dead, uh, where every week I would look at, uh, a movie from the fifties to the eighties. Um, and just how it fit into that portion of society and, and how it played with audiences and just what I thought of it, just, you know, very conversational has kind of always been, uh, my approach and not, not terribly, uh, academic, which is kind of surprising with where I've ended up at a publishing house, but, mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, yeah. So 2015 is when I started with, uh, with daily dead. So about eight years now I've been writing these kinds of things. As far as the book goes, that was honestly, uh, if I'm being completely honest and selfish right from the start, I wanted to make a book. Uh, eventually I wanted to write a bunch of pieces and then I wanted to put them in, into a book as simple minded and, and naive as, as that sounds, that was my ultimate, uh, goal for the book. So, um, yeah, but for eight years now I've been with daily writing for daily dead and, and I did, uh, I have so far, I think over 330, uh, of the day of the drive and dust offs, uh, on there as well as I did a TV, uh, one called it came from the tube, which was a lot harder to mine because the grounds are not as fertile. Uh, there's a lot less to talk about, uh, there. So that one died easy, but yeah, you know, like pretty much right from the start of, of writing these kinds of reviews i wanted to do a review book because those were my favorite growing up i grew up reading you know the the roger ebert uh, books the leonard malton books obviously siskel and ebert on tv um and i've always navigated towards uh review books of of all kinds you know Chaz balloons books um just so many uh, in, of music and, and movies. Like if something has a star beside it and, and, and words, I'm going to read it. I'm just drawn to, I'm drawn to that written word of someone's, I, someone's opinion. I love reading someone's opinion about uh, a film or a piece of art that I'm familiar with. And, and my purpose with the column was to do to, was to give uh, readers something that I was familiar with that maybe they weren't, um, and present it to them just like I was telling them about me seeing a movie. But I wouldn't give away any spoilers, even if the movie was like 50 years old. I still wouldn't give any plot twists away or mm. anything like that. So it wasn't a thing where I could describe the 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 you know machine the the machinery of the plot and 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 everything that happened. I would kind of leave that to to this viewer, my, this supposed viewer who hadn't seen uh, this movie before. That was my goal anyway. Yeah. And I know that your book uh, deals a lot with sort of the historic, historic, I can never say this word. I want to say historicity. I think that's right. The historical context of these films in which they were released. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the process of going back and sort of examining a relationship between a movie and like the pop culture and the era and the audiences and the industry that it was released in. Because I think 
one of the things that that movie fans of all stripes sometimes do is assume that whatever our opinion of a film is today so it's one of two things right like that movie was either you know everybody hated it now everybody loves it or everybody always loved it yeah but in you know in my writing and your writing and donato's writing we've all found that history culture and their relationships to films is a very ever-evolving and very fascinating dynamic that changes a lot year over year decade over decade so can you talk a little bit about that process of, of gathering these into sort of historical themes and what that taught you about movies that that you that surprised you or that that um you thought would be educational uh you know the ones uh, that came uh, the previous decades i think were the most interesting for me to delve into the 50s uh, the mm-hmm. 60s, like I said, I wasn't born till 1970. So, uh, you know, dealing with uh, the atomic uh, age was was fascinating. Um, so what I did with with each uh, category that I have or festival that I have in in the book is I have 12 uh, festivals and I put them into uh, subcategories of five films a piece. Um, I didn't actually do an atomic one specifically uh, because I peppered it and mixed it, mixed and matched it with uh, more overpowering themes than that specifically. But uh, I did find that every movie that was made uh, in the fifties, it seemed from like the late mid fifties to the late fifties was very, uh, very government positive, uh, which is not surprising because that's, you know, that's all we, what we see to this day, right? You just look at any, uh, you know, war propaganda film or, or Navy flyers or whatever you want to say, uh, government and whatnot has always been, and, and the military has always been, and is always portrayed in a very heroic light, um, in these films. So I guess, one of the things that was surprising about that was that the more things change, the more they stay the same because you see mm-hmm. a lot of the same, yes, themes in, in film, but more importantly, themes in life, like the same bureaucratic bullshit that was going on in, in the fifties uh, of not letting, you know, the, 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 um, um, the people aware of what's happening uh, you know, you look at, uh, it's not, I don't cover it in my book, but, uh, the original invasion of the body snatchers, right. Um, that, that paranoia, uh, that was there. The sixties was, and again, I didn't, again, it's not divided into decades. Uh, mm-hmm. but the most interesting thing that I found about the sixties was that really psycho was that psychic shift. Uh, to a more realistic uh, horror. The man in the zipper suit was kind of taking a backseat, and all of a sudden we had this new kind of, of monster that was more realistic and more, you know, um, I wouldn't want to say down to earth because there's really nothing down to earth about Norman uh, Bates, but, you know, I a real change in the kinds of, of films when psycho came out that we, we started to see a more realistic killer and we started to see those zippered monsters kind of fade uh, into the background. I mean, Michael Powell, you know, Albert Hitchcock did, does it with his TV crew and uh, it's a commercial hit, 
uh, you know, Michael Powell uh, makes Peeping Tom the same year and is, has his career destroyed pretty much, you know, so it's audiences will let you know, you know, what, what is uh, yum and what is yuck, right? Cause it's, it's very fickle, but yeah, I found psycho and, and peeping Tom beside it was a real psychic change uh, for horror in, in terms of what we saw. Robert Block, the writer was all over that decade, like, like nobody's business, right? He even did a, he even did wrote a few, uh, amicus anthologies, but you know, Psycho and um, a Straight Jacket with Joan, which Joan Crawford, which is in the book, uh, just these really uh, terrific. They're slashers essentially with a very uh, slack moral center. That the that morality of the fifties was kind of gone too and washed away a little bit by psycho. I found as well, uh, the bad seed, the original with, uh, Maureen McCormack, um, you know, that was a total morality tale, uh, uh, about, you know, making sure that kids can be evil too. And then make sure that, you know, evil gets, uh, punished. Now in the stage play, uh, I do believe the girl gets drowned or shot, uh, in the movie version uh, she gets arrested and then they uh, come out and they like spank her during the bows to let you know that she's okay. And they were just pretending here, you know, mm-hmm. um, that was, that kind of goes by the wayside uh, come the sixties. They're not, these filmmakers aren't, aren't doing, uh, they aren't giving you signs and they're not doing cuddly little things anymore. They're, they, they're tending to get a little more vicious. And as we see by uh, the end of the sixties, especially with with Romero who kind of you know rips horror a new asshole um then then all bets are off after that when it comes to you know how 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 dangerous uh horror uh, can be well I, I love writing my remake column for that same reason you kind of talked about of, of getting to address older films and live in that historical era for a hot minute and I think my favorite example when when you were talking about the fifties and you were talking about like this transition from fifties and sixties, uh, I like I immediately started thinking about both the blobs and how you know Chuck Russell's eighty eight the blob is the most fucking anti government cynical fuck everything about bureaucracy movie you can imagine, and the original you know late fifties is about like the community coming together and like working with the police and working with, you know, everything about it and to get both of those movies and like assess them next to each other. Like, again, you were saying like looking at movies and looking at them next to each other, uh, like you get to see so declaratively and like so clearly how different times were and how cinema reflects that. And like how these stories are being told. I, it's such a fun thing to, relive parts of history that i was clearly not alive for <laughs> yeah same here <clears throat> again like the, the the 50s and 60s stuff uh you know when you're a kid and you see it's funny when you're a kid and you see i can remember going to um uh saturday matinees as a kid and they would show like old uh martin and lewis movies or or three stooges and, and when you see, as a kid, when you see something in black and white and you see everyone talking all prim and proper on the screen and all that, you naturally think that that reflects how life was, 
you know, you don't, when you're a kid, you don't hear Fatty Arbuckle stories, right? So you're not aware of this stuff as a kid and you think what's being portrayed on the screen, how they are from the old timiness in black and white is, is the, is the times itself, but it's not, it's the, it's the culture and it's the way society wanted to present itself at the time. Right. And so it's fun, like you said, to see as well, is there anything behind that? Why this movie was received this way and maybe why this one wasn't received, you know, a particular way. So just fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I, I could talk about that a lot more, but I know that we want to talk about the movie that, that you brought us. So I'm going to do, I'm going to do a mid episode reminder that the book is a cut below a celebration of B horror movies, 1950s to 1980s. It is going to be out on Halloween of 2023. So just around the corner, hopefully, at least according yeah. to Amazon. I don't, I don't know if that date is going to shift. Who knows? That date has, it's been Amazon bingo with uh, the date. It moved it all the way up to the end of November and then they've dialed it back to uh, October 31st, but I guarantee everyone it is on McFarlane's, uh, fall. It's in McFarlane's fall catalog. So it will be out, uh, this fall. I'm, I'm assuming definitely in time for Halloween. And until then you'll be able to connect with Scott online. We'll give you his contact information at the end of the episode and you can kind of follow along as he starts to tease what's in the book. Joe Dante approved book, by the way, I don't want to forget that. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about today's movie from a whisper to a screen. Okay, welcome back. So for today's episode of Certified Forgotten, we're going to be talking about From a Whisper to a Scream. This is a 1987 American horror anthology directed by Jeff Burr, who has directed movies like The Third, Texas Chainsaw, The Middle, Puppet Masters, The Second, Pumpkinhead, a major franchise director, just maybe not the ones that people spend all their time talking about online. The film is framed as a series of horror stories told to a small town journalist. It stars a very late career, <laughs> very late career of Vincent Price, um, and it weaves together stories about zombies, voodoo, and the Confederate Army, which means, hey, it's got everything you want in a horror film. So as we always do on the show, let's start by asking you, Scott, you had mm. your pick of a lot of different stuff, and you in particular probably had a ton of things to choose from, given your knowledge of like undiscovered horror. What made you want to bring this one on the show? Uh, well, again, you know, I like to be truthful and, and again, for selfish reasons, uh, I wrote about it in the book. Um, hey. so I thought maybe that'll be a nice opportunity to uh, speak about the book, but it is a movie. The reason it's in the book is because it's one that just, I don't think has been talked about enough as far as anthologies go, especially in the, uh, the decade it came out in the eighties after uh, creep show was not uh i wouldn't say a terribly uh productive era for um these kinds of films universal had uh, nightmares the following year uh we got creep show 2 
After Midnight was another one, but there wasn't uh, a ton. And this one I can remember seeing on on video um, under its second title, which was uh, The Offspring, uh, the original title in Canada. But everywhere else, their original title was From a Whisper to a Scream. And then it was uh, when it was re-released or changed to The Offspring, which is what a lot of people uh, know it as. So it was on home you know, video. The, the thing about those two titles, you got to keep them separated. Continue, please. Oh, that's beautiful. I, why would you give him the finger? That was good. That's a great I that was, I was okay. I'm happy with yeah. myself. I Please, like God, continue. I like it. Yeah, so I saw it on, uh, of course, home video in 87 or uh, probably early 88 is when it came out on, on the home video. And um, it's just, it's a anthology film that uh, is mean as opposed to the old amicus um, um, classics that, you know, Matt and I are so fond of, uh, it's, it's mean spirited, uh, whereas those are, are campy. This one is, uh, there's four stories plus the wraparound, but yeah, it's a very gritty, um, just, it's, it's just mean spirited with some, uh, very lively, uh, effects work. And some good performances and a couple of not so good performances, but mostly good performances. Uh, great gore, uh, a lot of energy. And um, this this is the thing. My favorite thing about an anthology like uh, this and the Amicus Creepshow, which Creepshow is my, that's my, that's my all time, uh, that's my all time favorite, is being fashioned after the old EC comics. So, uh, shitty person does shitty thing. Shitty person gets comeuppance. This to me is, should be the basis for every single horror story because I just love that format. Now, all of those amicus films, uh, followed that pattern. Certainly Creepshow paid direct tribute, even visually as well to the EC comics. Uh, this one does the same. It, it uses that same morality, uh, but again, it just doesn't have the campiness, but the morality is there. This this movie has four tales and three of the four. I think the people deserve to get their comeuppance. There's one and we can talk about it that I don't think they deserved what they got. The rest, uh, uh, Mr. Monagle, when you do see this film, if you do watch it, um, there's a lot of really terrible <laughs> people in this movie doing terrible uh, taboo things, not, uh, I wouldn't say, um, aggressively, but they're there and, and it's made to make you squirm. And maybe that's where the humor comes in. Uh, it's, it's really dark, uh, uh, humor because there's some twists in each episode that I, that I find funny, then I'm sure, uh, you find funny as well, Matt, but they're really dark because it's not, you know, it doesn't have Terry Thomas and it doesn't have Joan Collins and it doesn't have, you know, Patrick McGee or Tom Baker, all these greats uh, that were in all these old ones, you know, uh, but it has a slew, I think, of of uh, great veteran performers, Cameron Mitchell, uh, Terry Kaiser, Rosalind Cash uh, is great. Um, overall, Clue. the performances are great. Clue. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, the performances 
are are good. I think the uh, script is good again, except for one uh, segment, which I think is weak. Um, but hey, that's you know what those with every anthology, you're always going to rank uh, which episodes uh, you like more than the other. You know, there's always going to be one that you're not crazy about, and and that's fine. This one I think has a good batting average, and that's why I always like to. Uh, to talk it up whenever I can, because I think it's for people who love these anthologies, especially the amicus ones, because I think what I was trying to get to 18 hours ago was that I'm not crazy about the new format so much. Uh, the ABCs of death, uh, the VHS films where not that I don't like the individual stories, but they're not, they're not structured the same. They're not, they're not three part structured. They're not, creep show structure they're not tales from the crypt structured they're usually they start medias rest and then you know they're off and running and then the camera stops and you kind of sometimes have to wonder even though you saw some wonderful things where was the story right and then don't even start me on wraparounds that's a, that's another thing but again i appreciate those pieces individual in, individually but what i like for a good um what I love from a good anthology is uh, a, a kind of cohesiveness in a sense. And it, it can either be thematically or it can even just be um, how the wraparound ties it, ties it together really well. You I know? wish I had seen this before I saw the mortuary collection, uh, which is a shutter release because like mortuary collection feels so indebted to from a whisper to a scream it's got everything you're talking about there scott because like basically just sub clancy brown in instead of vincent price it's about a morgue versus you know just somebody telling stories about dead people uh but yeah like it feels so indebted to that and i i as i'm watching it i'm going like yeah I, i'm picking up on all those things that you're talking about and you know getting clue Gulliger out of the freaking gate and as the lead in the first uh segment i'm just like oh yeah you hooked me like immediately you brought one of my favorite veteran character actors and you're just letting him be a deranged psychopath so i again you've already alluded to the fact that i love i love an anthology i'm a huge supporter of them uh i do actually tend to like more of the vhs movies than other people and you know i sat down and reviewed abc's death and i find it funny to go through every single one and do like a three sentence, just write up on it and just try to like rank them like that. And I, I didn't find, I didn't find that many weak spots here. I agree. I, I don't. I, so here's my first question to you is the one where you think they don't deserve their comeuppance. Uh, yes. the, the Lovecraft one is that, is that the you got it. performers? Yeah. 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 Okay. That other make, than that he's other than, yeah. Other than he's stupid as a doornail and he, he should listen to instructions. Uh, that is given to him by a voodoo woman. Yeah. Other than that. Yeah. They don't, they didn't deserve their, uh, she certainly didn't maybe him, but she, she didn't do anything. Which is almost wild because, you know, so, so for anyone listening, you know, again, four segments going on here, you have very briefly just to try to sell you on from a whisper to your screen. If you're thinking about it, uh, Stanley is pretty much just about a serial killer. Uh, and maybe there is some creature work in there at some point. On the Run is a fun little bayou. Uh, let's just say it's about never-ending life and playing with, you know, do you want to live forever and what are you going to give up to get that? And let's just say again, it ends very horribly for someone who wants eternal life. Uh, and so you're you're getting to that. 
getting to Lovecraft's Traveling Amusements, which I don't know if it's my favorite, but it absolutely has my favorite gore in there. Because well, you, yeah, it's it's all there. It's all at that ending. Yeah, <laughs> all of the gore yeah, in the you, movie or the most come of up it and, is safe for that. Yeah, the comeuppance that you know Scott is talking about in this one specifically is gore-tastic because you have this glass chewer at a circus, and uh, let's just once again, as, as vaguely as I can say, a uh, bunch of circus freaks have special powers. This guy can swallow glass and objects he shouldn't and eat them without any harm and they have to come out eventually <laughs> um so that is what happens there and last one is four soldiers monolary mentioned there is a confederate army uh segment in here somewhere and very children of the corny very stephen king-esque it feels to me and four soldiers don't want the civil war to be over until they run into a group of children who have basically formed their own community who also don't want the war to be over and they are way, way more violent about it. Yeah, exactly. And then it has the, it has the prologue and that last uh, segment with the kids, of course, is to uh, again, going backwards chronologically, first of all, should start off with the, with the, uh, or should, I should add uh, the wraparound uh, uh, the wonderful Susan Tyrell, is a reporter who is uh, present for the uh, lethal injection of Martine Beswick, uh, famous Bond girl. And um, when she passes, uh, Susan Tyrell goes to the library where she meets the woman who was uh, uh, killed by lethal injection, her uncle, uh, Julian, played by our wonderful Vincent Price. He's the town historian and librarian. So we have our crypt keeper, crypt keeper set in place. And then he starts to tell her that this town that they're in, Oldfield, uh, Tennessee, is uh, saturated in evil. It was, uh, uh, it was born evil. It was raised evil. It would inspire uh, Halloween ends as an evil town. Probably. I don't know. Let's not go off on that tangent. Um, and so he starts to tell her these stories, starting from present day, which is our Stanley, all the way back to the four soldiers, which is about the birth of, of the town, the birth of evil in the town uh, brought on by the kids. Yeah. So, uh, again, it's an interesting structure in that there is uh, structure within the structure. Um Right. And it's not something you see. And again, that's not and I'm not comparing it to to the VHS films. Like I said, I like the segments of those, but I love the way that this one adheres to that amicus uh, tradition. Uh, right. That's what I really I think that's probably what I love about the most is it's very reverential, reverential to that format that that I love um, when they could they at that point, they probably could have done tried something different or whatever, but these guys, Jeff Burr and uh, um, Courtney C. Joyner, uh, who wrote Class of 1999 in prison, uh, Darren Scott, who would go on to write Tales from the Hood, right? Uh, it's a good script. Again, the only the only segment that I'm not crazy about is, the, uh, is Lovecraft's uh, traveling sideshow. Uh, I don't think I just don't think the story is that strong. I don't think the two 
lead performances, Glass Glass Boy and Pincushion Girl, are really very good at all. I think Rosalind Cash carries pretty much everything as the voodoo woman uh, in that segment. But I will agree with you. It's it's saved. Again, I don't hate it because when you get to the last three minutes of, of this episode, you just put on your sloshers and, uh, and, and wait for it because yeah, there's blood is spraying the walls. Uh, everywhere See, now. I, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna, I was gonna ask number one, which do you think is the weakest? Cause you mentioned there's one that doesn't stand up. So now that I have your answer, I will admit, I think my least favorite of the bunch. And I will, I will agree with you and say that the quality and the ratio here is very positive. Like, I was yeah. very shocked at how much I, I did enjoy like the eighties schlock of it all, but also very moral tales that have blatant themes and have blatant stances on them. Uh, but I think the one for me that struggles the most is on the run again about the timelessness and basically a criminal encounters somebody in the swamp who saves their lives and they realize, you know, Oh wow. You, you live forever. Like you were a slave at one point and we're now 200 years later, blah, blah, blah. So, I, but for some reason, that one feels like it drags a little bit, and that one feels like getting to its ultimate conclusion, which again is horrifying. Like just <laughs> the way that we get there, and we just see somebody wrapped in bandages and in a hospital bed, and just hey, you fucked with the wrong, the wrong mystic here. Um, yeah, I, 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 it just it has a pace that the others don't keep up. Where I think I agree with you, Lovecraft isn't the best acted of them all. But the way that it kind of has that uh, forbidden romance going through it and the way that it actually gets to that final point and holy crap, yeah. the gore starts flowing for me. Like, I, I think it tells <laughs> more of my tastes like that's for me. I'm going to remember that more than I'm actually going to remember Absolutely. on the run. Sure, sure. No, I, I get that. I think uh, I think on the run has too, too many uh, voodoo practicing scenes than it needs. If those were trimmed. It could it could be my favorite just because it, Terry Kaiser plays such a horrendous shit in this episode. He's a delight. He's a delight uh, to watch, and so is Clue in uh, in Stanley um, with his slicked blonde hair and Coke bottle glasses and and the white the wife beater the shit stained wife beater. He's just oh. Mr. Monagle, he does horrible things. I horrible. He horrible. does horrible things. He, just I, I get vibes of like the family from you know the Sawyer family. Like I, that that gives me Papa vibes for some reason. He looks exactly like Leatherface and yet, in a way. And yet, I don't and believe yet. that any of the Sawyers would do what he did. Yeah, I don't know. It, I don't know. This, so here, here's the thing version. that gets me. Yeah, well, that's fair. But um, I, here's the thing that gets me too. Uh, little Deaths, I think we covered with Matt Barone. And that, again, was another bleak as hell anthology. Way more modern, way more contemporary. Uh, so it's, it's, its bleakness is a little different and a little more sadistic in a way where I do think From a Whisper uh, to a Scream is a little more quote unquote fun. Um, but like that, let's, I kept thinking about that too, as I'm watching this going, you can tell these very moral tales that we've, we've seen over and over again. And, you know, there's always a, a lesson to be learned at the end of it. And I feel like horror movies that used to have, you know, again, those lessons to be learned, 
the way in the 80s the way of the early 90s it, it just is w- way more watchable to me like I, I i the way they handle it is just way more i don't know they have more to say versus something like uh little deaths or again whatever that movie was that it just is here's bleakness for bleakness is fucking sake and yeah we're just gonna yeah. make you feel bad and then go to the next segment and it's kind of like wait but w- do we get the scene where you know i actually get some vengeance here and I actually feel better about myself or am i just gonna human centipede my way through this whole thing and just feel like shit well let me let me ask you guys a question because you're talking about sort of like the um you know scott you talked earlier about sort of the the approach or the structure of an anthology film if it adheres to sort of like classic horror comic books versus sort of the new generation of of vhs movies and i'm I'm curious about the intent right behind the notion of, of of when you're shooting when you're writing or shooting a short for an anthology film like this versus other things can you can the two of you as as people that watch these movies review these movies think about it does there feel a difference when it's somebody basing like oh i have a good i have a good idea that's five minutes right so like and i know it's going to fit into this thing so i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of like i'm not saying it's a it's a real right like it's a showcase piece for me to get a feature made but i'm kind of playing with that notion versus something that is intended to be a handful of different pieces because we've all seen anthology films where they feel like you know, every story, trick or treat, a great example, every story in trick or treat is sort of like designed to exist in this trick or treat world. Whereas there are other films where it's sort of like filmmaker producers went out and grabbed a whole bunch of different talents, gave them kind of a broad edict. They interpreted their own way. So it's, it's definitely, it's, it's more of like a, a, um, like best of the eighties rock selection that it is like one band's album kind of a thing. So I'm curious, how, how do you feel about that with regards to this film and other anthologies can you feel the difference when everybody's sort of working when it's one album per se versus like a collection of, of, of hits that a bunch of filmmakers have come? Sure. Well, again, we, we, we touched on this subject, I think when we were talking about this generation and how they can just, you know, uh, prep, um, shoot, right. Uh, the ABCs, right. We're all short, uh, films, uh, some commission, some, uh, were chosen by submission, um, you know, but I, I think the problem that I have, I think the intent is, is two different things. Uh, I think that the latter, the ABCs, like you said, is a sizzle reel. It's a showcase for, for, for a talent. You, I don't think you can tell much of a story, uh, in, in, in five minutes that isn't just going to be something shocking, uh, to get your point across, you know, um, whereas, you know, if they were making Tales from the Crypt, the, the film, uh, you know, they have one screenwriter um, who does, writes each segment and it's one director and everything. It has that, that consistency that of, of not only a look and feel, but of, of themes as well, right? There's no sense, I don't get any sense of theme with when I'm watching a, an ABC, uh, ABCs of Dead, which, and again, that's it, not that their intent, so they're not doing anything wrong. I'm just not vibing particularly with. I would just, if I have my preference, uh, give me that wraparound and give me four or five uh, stories, and you know, I'm good. Yeah, I, I think anthologies themselves suffer a little bit in the way that the found footage genre does because people look at found footage, and we talked about this prior very quickly. But cool, all I need is my backyard and my phone, and I can make a found footage movie. You can, but it's probably not going to be good. Uh, that is just the reality of it. 
And I think horror anthologies fall into this mindset of, well, we just need a few filmmakers to make some short films, slap them together, and we have a horror anthology. And that is not how, again, a successful horror anthology feels. And from uh, A Whisper to a Scream is a great example of what we've been talking about, a stringing them together. I adore The Uncanny uh, with Peter Cushing and the way that it takes a horror anthology about cats. Like every story has to involve cats in some way. But they do feel, you know, aligned with each other. They feel in a row. They don't feel like just random stories about cats. Where now I look at certain films coming out and like number one, I think of I reviewed this horror film called uh, Holiday Hell. And was it a low budget, supposedly holiday themed horror anthology? That's how it was billed. But what it was is basically some shorts were lying around that a producer slapped together. Like there were two Christmas ones, so they doubled up on Christmas. Then there's another one that's not even about a holiday, and it looks like they added one scene to make it look like it takes place on New Year's Eve. So you can clearly see that someone's trying just to do a cash grab and make that work. Um, another one that comes to mind is like Death Sember. If you do not have any control over your anthology, and have any idea of how an anthology should still have momentum, despite the fact that it is different stories, you get December because what you get is a bunch of filmmakers that use different budgets, different time constraints, different everything. There's nothing, there's nothing ABCs of death about it where you have all five minutes and $5,000. Like this is very much, Hey, I have this cool idea of a horror anthology based around an advent calendar, but that's all I have. Go crazy. Like, you have to be in control of your horror anthology. And I think that's what the Amicus stuff, and that is what all of these older school horror anthologies actually understood. Uh, one that actually gets it better, I think, is the Theater Bazaar, which feels like more Amicus, which feels like more that. Um, uh, Nightmare Cinema, I was higher on than most people. But at the same time, like, I don't I like know. Nightmare you have Cinema. Yeah. Exactly. You have yeah. Mickey Rourke in the theater being the, the evil projectionist, but like tying things together. So, it's one thing to have a wraparound, but it's what it's another thing to model to your point, trick or treat it where it actually feels like a cohesive movie versus clearly looking at a product and going, you didn't have any idea. You had some spare parts and you tried to make a movie out of it. You know what? That's, that's only worked once successfully. And again, in the eighties uh, with an anthology and that's night train to terror. Uh, you know, if you have a bunch of shitty shorts uh, and you're trying to clump them together, you need to have a rock dance party on a train and have the devil and God, you know, work shit out. Uh, and then you end up with a masterpiece, right? It's simple, really. Fun fact, I got in beef with uh, Bill Murray's brother, Joel Murray, about Holiday Hell. Because <laughs> he's in one of the very shitty, shitty, low-budget uh, segments. And like, I gave it like a one star review and I'm just like, what is this? Get out of here. And like, he fucking found me on Twitter and started like attacking me. And I'm just like, you're too famous for like, even just being Bill Murray's brother, who's moderately successful in other movies, you're still too famous to be doing this. Like this movie is not worth your time. Go away. Why are you bringing attention to this movie? (laughs) That's what you should have said to him. Well, the last question um, that, we always end with, and I'm going to pose to the both of you, is the notion of legacy, right? On Certified Forgotten, we always like to end by saying, how does this movie that that meets our criteria of being forgotten find its audience in time? Um, and I want to open the scope of this just a little bit more because I think we talked about a lot of anthology films today, but I think for as much as people have anthology films that they like and that they remember, 
I don't know if it's the tie-ins to like seasonality or to individual themes. Anthology films as a whole don't seem to have the same staying power as other modes of storytelling. Like found footage has canonical films. Anthology movies don't quite enter. I mean, Trick or Treat is one of the bigger like canon type titles, but I feel like they don't enter the horror canon. They're not in everybody's like lexicon in the way that other modes are. So I want to ask how From a Whisper to a Scream can find its audience, but I also want to ask what does it take for an anthology movie to kind of break through and become a peer to great horror movies for audiences? Scott, we'll start with you. Uh, okay. Um, well, let's see. This came out in 87. I mean, since then, you know, in terms of its uh, legacy, um, you know, we we... It wasn't until we started doing the ABCs of horror that we went to this new style of uh, of anthology filmmaking. Was that sorry? Was that the scope of the question that we're talking about here? I got. Yeah, I, I, got, I, I just want to know. I want to know a what it, how this movie becomes successful in the way that that we think that it deserves to be, but also yeah. just feeling what does it take for a for a anthology film to endure i mean we talked about the creep shows sure, you know, like sure. those, those are those are locked but for stuff that came after i just feel like there are a lot of anthology movies that that blip but then they don't stay you know it's it's harder for them i think to stick uh because they're built up of individual stories and and people will remember individual stories uh rather than the whole if if they don't remember enough good about the film. So there's, it's like a percentage uh, thing, you know? Uh, I, I mean, I don't have any kind of pure metrics, but I think when a film, if you have four segments and three are good, then, you know, I think you've, you've, you're really successful. Same, you know, four out of five uh, creep show, you know, six, six for six, as far as I'm concerned. But um, you know, uh if if there isn't a high enough percentage, I think, uh, of good stories that you can relate to that you think are good enough stories, then um, that title necessarily won't stick for you, but the individual uh, piece uh, might. I think what's great about From a Whisper to a Scream uh, is that Scream Factory uh, released it with a whole bunch of uh, goodies of extras. Uh, so that's, of course, helped it tremendously um, you know, have certainly an awareness that it didn't have uh, before. I don't know if it's too old fashioned for the new uh, generation of uh, anthology lovers. Are the new generation of anthology lovers fans of not only the ABCs and VHSs, but of the older uh, Amicus design? Because I think, you know, if we're the last ones talking about Amicus, well, you know, then that those movies kind of head by the wayside with, uh, you know, with us. Uh, right. And we're all just talking about, you know, VHS 95, which is fine. I like VHS 95. Um, yeah. So I think it's legacy, uh, gets a little better each day. Um, again, the awareness of it, is tied into uh, if anthologies are big. Antholo when anthologies are doing well, it sends a ripple effect, I think, back to the back catalogs of stuff like this. Um, and, and people like Matt who do up, you know, who do up uh, articles 
on it. Uh, you know, I have, like I said, I have a piece in the book because I want people to know about this uh, movie. I think it deserves it deserves a second life, especially with uh, anthology lovers, because I think if you're a fan of the concept of anthologies, um, this makes me sound like a hypocrite, then you should be able to like both. Obviously, I have a preference. Um, and that may be just because I that's I was raised up in that. And then to see this new format uh, just doesn't feel the same to me or whatever. But I appreciate it. And like I said, there's individual stuff I remember from those films. But I'm more apt to remember uh, the full film of the older amicuses because I think their batting average was like really, really high. I think there's nothing worse than getting burned by a bad anthology and that hurts the entire subgenre when you are someone who catches a anthology that you are have a you know maybe their batting average is like Martin Maldonado it's no batting all of 100 and there's there's not much success rate there so i for me I love my anthologies as we've all talked about this entire time. So I am way more forgiving of the fact that I know it's probably going to be a crapshoot. I'm going to get lucky if there's more good ones and bad ones and I can brace myself for that. But I think for the general horror viewer who isn't, you know, getting anthologies that frequently monogle, as you said, like the horror anthologies seem to be indie now you have to go the indie route. There's no real big budget mainstream trick or treat coming out because how long has it been trick or treat? Uh, it's, so, tele- it's television if it's anything now, right. it's television it's del toro creating right. like the cabinet of yeah yeah exactly but but even then like you know del toro's cabinet of curiosities it's hard to call it an anthology because it, they're feature length stories like you're going in over an hour on some of those so like the idea of getting horror anthologies has become niche in its own right so it's hard to look at that and say, well, yeah, like it's going to have a resurgence because how many people know about Field Guide to Evil? How many people know about all these other ones that are out there that have been happening, uh, but just don't get the marketing, don't get this, don't get that. So it's hard to say what it'll take to get a resurgence other than taking the good ones and trying to say like, okay, cool. My, you know, If we're going to double bill it from a whisper to a scream and mortuary collection like i'm gonna go tweet that shit out later because i'm like holy shit this is a perfect double bill and you do something like that and people who are shutter lovers now and go oh i did love the mortuary collection maybe i should go check this other one out that's the way this endures that's the way that something like from a whisper to a scream it can come back i think you have to pair it with this is something i always talk about but like pair it with something that people quote unquote know relates to now yeah exactly find that relation point uh, but again, I, for some reason, this just feels incredibly Stephen King to me in a way. So I think you can also, the King Renaissance, I, I, he has nothing to do with this movie, but I don't know if you can kind of spin that angle and say, wow, this feels like something that learned from King or, you know, like feels very King in that aspect. So I just little tricks and treats here and there to kind of get those viewers enticed and say the right thing. And, you know, if we've learned anything from the internet, it's that if you have the right hook, it's all the world. So. Yeah, uh, I think you know, the headline. Sorry, I was just going to say uh, the headline. If you want to get people's attention with this movie, is is Clue Gulliger uh, fucks a dead woman. I think that's if you lead with that. Uh, I think they'll be you'll they'll go. Hmm? Sorry, what's that? Marketing gold. Put that put that on the tagline. That's it. Great, great SEO. Great SEO. <laughs> you know, the only thing I'll add to that conversation, and this is going to sound incredibly glib, but I swear to God, this has been what I'm doing. 
to the point of the need for anthology films that tell cohesive stories, I've spent the last hour trying to remember a single VHS2 short other than Gareth Evans' Safe Haven. And that's no knock on any of the other films. It's just even me, who's in, I can only remember that one. That is the only short from that anthology. And I remember there being other good shorts in that anthology, but that totally, I think, sells the point that both of you were making is that like that is all I remember. I remember that one because it was the best of them and nothing else about that movie has has kind of stuck. And so when I go to watch VHS2, I'm not going to watch VHS2. I'm going to boop, boop, boop forward to Safe Haven, Safe Haven. and then I'm going to turn it back off. Gareth and Timo fucking crushed that. Yes. That's so good. It's so Scott, much better than the rest of it. Sorry. Go ahead. It, it, it is. No. Scott, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I want to give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find, like, what are your preferred pre-orders or everything in the publishing industry? So where oh, yes. can people go to pre-order your book um, or to learn more about the book as it's coming out? Hello, people. Uh, yeah, so the book is being published through McFarland Publishing. You can go directly to the McFarland Publishing website and look for a cut below. Uh, it's also available through Amazon, of course. Uh, pre-orders are big, as uh, Mr. Monaco was saying, in the business. Uh, if you like old horror, if you like conversations about old horror movies, uh, I have 60 of them to talk about into 12 fun festivals. Uh, the movie we were just talking about from a whisper to a scream, uh, is in uh, festival five, which is called any portmanteau in a storm. Uh, and there's 59 more films to talk about. I hope you'll pre-order, uh, ask your local re uh, your local favorite bookseller to bring it in. Mm. Uh, but please get on it. I think people are going to really enjoy it. Uh, it's a fun read. Donato, how do people connect with you on the internet and read your, again, I have to promote it. It's my favorite piece that you've written recently. Uh, your Reds article that you wrote for Bloody Disgusting. I did. I finally wrote about the Reds. I will say I, I had written about the Reds on a defunct website and Bloody was nice enough to let me do some interviews with filmmakers like uh, Josh Lobo, who did I Trapped the Devil, and Stephen C. Miller, who did the Silent Night remake and, you know, two red saturated films and yeah, I had a lot of fun just digging the hell into why I am obsessed with the color red in horror movies and why it works for me. So that lives on bloody now. I'm gracious for that. And God, I just finished Fantasia Festival. So all those reviews are up. I've got Fantastic Fest on the horizon, uh, fucking Brooklyn Horror. So yeah, I'm going to be busy in uh, in the coming months. And you can follow me at Donatabomb on Twitter letterboxd instagram and blue sky i will admit i'm probably a little more active on blue sky these days and twitter hell yeah Same. so uh it, it's just where it's at and i understand it's a little harder because you got to wait for codes and stuff like that but if you can do the shift blue sky is is bluer pastures if we want to say it that way and i would say don't hesitate but i unfortunately i'll be on twitter until the end so you got me on both i will do some cross posting but I don't know. Twitter's just turned into here are my articles where blue sky is like, let's actually engage and talk. We've been, I feel like we've all just been sort of waiting for one platform to gain critical mass. And I think that that blue sky has finally done that where enough of the people that I want to follow are on the platform and enough of the people that they want to follow. And it just has this like cumulative effect where we're all, we're all headed there, which is my way of saying you can follow me on blue sky at monogle.bsk.app or whatever the, the full code there is. Um, I don't have any extra codes. I, just, I gave out 
one of ours today and I give out certified forgotten extra ones today. So I'm out of codes for the moment. I might I have, have one. one I can't, I can't give one away. I cannot give one away. I gave one there away we go. to my manager finally. I have one available though. Who wants it? Someone get Tell it. Tell you what, we'll do it this way. If you uh, show proof of purchase for Scott's book and he will give, we will all pull together and give everybody blue sky codes uh, that can show receipt pre-orders of his book. We'll make that super simple. Um, and you can also, of course, visit our website, certifiedforgotten.com, where we have some incredible, incredible film criticism. And we're very, very happy to be running uh, some thoughtful essays, the kind of stuff I think, Scott, that that uh, you would look at and be like, that's what film criticism should be. You bet. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We're going to be sure to pluck something else from your book at some point in the future and bring you back. And as we always end, we're going to have Donato do something a little off-putting. And I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. But all right, let's Okay, all right. You're my daddy. Outstanding. That's what it is.